Welcome to the Vulnerability Rocks podcast. You're listening to Emma Bell, and I believe that true healing starts with sharing. Welcome to this week's episode of the Vulnerability Rocks podcast. And this week, I have my guest, Alex. And Alex is uh, the co-founder of Be Sober, which is a community-interested company that connects and supports people who want to live alcohol-free. She is also a volunteer for Nakoa and a speaker and a message board mentor to support children of alcoholic parents, something which is really close to her heart from her own childhood experiences of living with an alcoholic parent. Now, Alex has been on a journey of her own, which we're going to unpick and unravel and discover together today. Um, She has been wonderful to me through some recent um, challenging experiences in my own life and I've really connected with her and I'm really excited for you to get to know her too. So without further ado, um, we will get into the podcast. Welcome Alex, welcome to the podcast, how are you? I'm really good actually, thank you Emma. Um, Apart from the fact that we're still locked down and I'm in the same boat as everybody else in the UK, but yeah, I'm good, I'm really good. Let's talk about that for a minute though, like how how is that? Because it's it's just been going on forever, right? Like for everyone, we're stuck in this perpetual state of when's it gonna end? Yeah, I think the hardest thing for me, and I've just actually been speaking about it, um, is my children, the the impact it's having on their mental health and mm-hmm. being able to feel that from them and being helpless to do anything about it because we're a really open family. We talk through problems, we talk through issues, mm-hmm. but that's all it is at the end of the day is talking and you can't get out and get them with their friends and get them socializing and get them doing there's no division between home and school so you know I'm not only being mum I'm also trying to be teacher which is my previous profession but not their teacher and they're not used to that side so Mm. yeah and it's just not being able to see any end to it that's that's the hardest thing for them and therefore it's the hardest thing for me so Yeah. yeah Hard. but it's okay you know it's it, it's still very much a first world problem to me that and um we just muddle through yeah it's um I, I was talking to a friend the other day actually just about how it's difficult enough for adults who are trying to be these multi-role people in their children's lives in these young yeah. people's lives as adults we are able to have like more insight, more awareness, more otherworldly experiences to help us kind of go, but we can be okay and we can muddle through and, you know, we get through this time. And I just think for young people, it's hard, right? Because they're still in that developing mindset of working out what the world even is. And now this happens and it's sort of for a really prolonged time. So I'm really, I'm really feeling for the young people. Like I'm feeling for the parents because they're having to do million one things and wear another hundred hats on top of the hats they have to wear. Yeah. And then the kids are also, yeah, doing their best. Like everyone's just doing their best in a really tough time. Yeah. And I think the other thing that, you know, I, I always mention on anything I speak on is, you know, that I, I can't help but have empathy and feeling for the children that are, don't have nice family homes, yeah. that don't have the protection and the warmth and the safety mm. of their home. You know, those that under a normal 
everyday basis go to school and actually escape for a little while mm. and, and live kind of a little daydream in school and don't have to face the reality it does make me really concerned thinking you know there's so many children living where there's alcohol and you know and I know that's what we're going to talk about today but mm. it, it's horrific you know I can't picture what lockdown would have been like when I was a little girl it's mm. horrific yeah really well, we're gonna we're gonna talk and unpack that a little bit more together, um, and let our listeners get to know you more. You know, and I want yeah, them to, yeah. I've I've been getting to know you, and I'd love them to get to know you too. So, can we start by um, who's Alex, and you know what you're doing now? So let's start with like the coaching bit, like what you're doing now, and then we'll kind of go back and talk about how you arrived here and and what brought you to what you do now yeah so I, I come under a very broad category of life coaching mm-hmm. and it, it didn't feel right it didn't sit with me right and you know I had conversations with you about this and I just felt that it doesn't quite feel that I'm a life coach I do more than that and that's not undermining that profession it was just I do more than that I do something else and I came to the realization with help and input from several people and yourself included mm. that what I actually am is somebody who's realigning people with their authentic selves and their values so I actually named myself a realignment coach Mm -hmm. and I think that serves me really well because it brings in the work that I'm doing to allow people recovery from alcohol and drugs it Mm -hmm. brings in the resilience um, building that I like to do with people who've been through traumatic experiences and it does bring them back to finding out who they are and living by those values so that's what I do in terms of coaching and the other side of it is the be sober work that I do which is still coaching but I work um with other two other co-founders of an organization called be sober which is all about helping people to stay sober when they want a sober lifestyle whether that be because they associate with being alcoholic or whether they just want to take a break yeah and um be sober is obviously how I got introduced to you yeah. first, and uh, and it's a great space because um, it isn't just about being an alcoholic. It's if we are just in a space where we think that we need to step out of that arena for a bit as well, right? So it's a really supportive space for choosing to be alcohol free, however alcohol may or may not be showing up for you in your life, right? And and um, and I and I love the content that comes out. And I've shared it with with people as well. And I know that it's helped people. So it's um it's it's good what you're doing, you know. Yeah, we do get told quite a lot that not only are we, you know, like you, you get platforms that say come and join our safe space, mm. but then it's it's not always multidimensional. It's mm-hmm. kind of saying it and not living by it. Mm. And the, the feedback that we tend to get is you provide that safe arena you have mm. that safe arena we feel safe we feel a belonging we mm. feel a community so we've really achieved what we wanted to achieve which was bringing together like-minded people to form a supportive community and a network of friends so that's mm. been our main aim and that's what we've achieved so yeah really pleased with that and, it, and it's funny isn't it because even whether you define yourself as an alcoholic or not anybody that goes out and has a drink at the weekend when you decide to step out of that social setting and to step into something new I as you know I haven't had a drink for nearly two years and I wasn't an alcoholic but it certainly wasn't helping my mental health yeah I felt it afterwards and 
when I decided to really not drink again and not as a self-punishment because actually it's it I feel better it is a little bit like oh so what do we do socially next right because it is everywhere and you sort of feel like everyone's like oh well you know when you want to come and have a drink come and have a drink you know kind of thing or oh you're being a bit boring and all of that and it's this social kind of pressure um that I think can kind of make someone go back to doing it for social kind of pressure rather than sticking to what they want to do like me for example not because I had a drink problem but because actually it made me feel more anxious it made me feel more down and living with bipolar it just wasn't helpful for me right Mm -hmm. um and seeing the posts that come through from be sober kind of show you like actually there is social life beyond having a drink and life can be different and okay we're not going to be swinging from the chandeliers at the pub or whatever but you can still go and have a good time and have fun. And and that's what I loved about the content when I first started seeing it, because I I hear it, and, you know, they're like, oh, I don't really want to have a drink, but, you know, everyone's kind of putting on the pressure and it's what we do after work. And, and, and it, that social pressure is just there, isn't it? Yeah, and it's very, very real. And for mm. some people who have no support, you know, I'm really lucky my husband doesn't drink either and he never really had any issue with drink I mean it would be literally me bringing home cans of beer so that I could justify my wine drinking he didn't bother Mm. but for people who don't have the same support or a network of sober friends Mm. it can be a really lonely place when you step out of it like you say you know what do I do now what you know what's my what is my what's my identity without alcohol Mm. because Mm. we, we associate our you know for me, it was, oh, I'm the life and soul of the party. I'm fun. I'm the clown. I'm this, you know, and all of those things, when I took alcohol away, actually, I stepped back and thought, I'm not even that person. So it, it's a huge journey once you stop drinking and that you've got over the kind of physical addiction bit that you didn't realize was there. Mm-hmm. Then comes this period of discovery, which is really daunting and really scary. And doing that in a safe community where you've got other people doing the same is the only way to stay sober in my opinion there's mm-hmm. many reasons and many ways and methods but connection they say is the opposite of addiction and and now I understand that term yeah I, I completely agree and and I would say that that community and connection aspects no matter what big experience or thing you're trying to overcome is critical to a long-term recovery, a long-term stable outcome for going through a big change. Because when you feel alone, you just get lost. Yeah, and, and, and often when you feel alone, you start to act like you're alone. So you mean it might not be the case, you might be surrounded by people, but if they're not on a level and they don't understand and have compassion or any form of empathy for your journey, you you know you they can't get down in that space with you so no. you, you are alone doesn't matter how many people are around you you are alone mm-hmm. um and, and it's funny that because you know I was talking about and again we may go on to this but talking about the period of time where I'd had my miscarriages mm-hmm. and I was surrounded by loving family members and friends and everybody you know I had so many people but I'd never been lonelier in my life yeah And I think when you are lonely and you understand loneliness, then you can get down in the space with somebody else who's lonely and say, 
you know what I get this I'm not going to be able to pull you out of it right now but I get you so you, yeah. you're not alone you're not yeah. alone yeah and and I I completely relate to that obviously with my latest experience of having termination for medical reasons um being awake in the middle of the night scrolling just trying to find somebody who said yeah I've done that too and it's you know I get it and it's so powerful so powerful um so healing (laughs) yeah it is and you know the the last time I had a miscarriage which was in the first lockdown in June um I haven't actually talked about this but um I reached out to a friend who is still a friend and we're very different but she she's a very um religious lady she's a very very believes in God and and Jesus and the rest of it and and I reached out and I was just lost you know and I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that either it was just it's not my beliefs but I reached out to her and I was just like you know am I gonna lose this baby I'm asking questions of anyone who could just give me some reassuring answer you know you've been there haven't you that whole Mm. well it might not be me it might not be the case it might not be going wrong that desperate stage where you're just reaching out and when you come across somebody who just says you know what I've been there I've Mm. been through this I understand it yeah it doesn't take away your problem but you just you're just not alone anymore yeah it's powerful stuff yeah so let's um let's go back so talk me through your journey I know that your younger years were particularly difficult for you yeah um talk talk to me a little bit about your life growing up so I'm from, I'm one of four girls, um, two older sisters who were from my dad's first marriage. My dad um, was a professional musician and a singer, very, very talented, very clever man. Um, but because of his traumatic childhood, um, he was just a post-war baby, much younger than the others. He married very young. He was 18 when he had my two older sisters. Um and that didn't last very long. And he met my mum and we came along later. Now, what I've since discovered is that first marriage broke down because of my dad's drinking. Okay. Um, she was a very quiet lady um, and he, his lifestyle just didn't match hers. She was there at home bringing up two babies and he was out pub and club singing and, and drinking. Mm-hmm. And when he met my mum um and it was mid 70s they lived a very kind of you know the peace life and traveling Mm -hmm. all over and she was more than happy child free more than happy to join in with that lifestyle and go and support him around the pubs and the clubs so when I was born um and I'm the oldest of the two of us um, my dad was still singing on pubs and clubs but they had also bought a pub and started to run it and with that came all sorts of pressures for them and both of them were very sociable and alcohol just took them in it just took them like it could anybody like it did me mm-hmm. you know working in the pub using tips to buy a drink and socializing them my dad going out so it was a very alcohol fueled childhood it did not feel abnormal and I know that you'll get that it did not feel strange it did not feel weird and the way I talk about it sometimes is quite detached because that was my normal life but I guess Looking back from a very, very young age, I remember very big arguments and a lot of violence, um, never aimed at me or my sister, but I certainly saw um, a lot of very big, violent arguments, you know, and injuries. Um, And I quickly adopted this role of protection over my sister, um, who was 16 months younger than me. And 
you know, that would involve all sorts of things. So, so recognizing very early that maybe my dad had had too much to drink and being quite on guard about his, how he might react, recognizing that my mum was getting upset and looking back, probably suffering from depression herself mm. um, and trying to fix things. I became the fixer, you know, and whether that meant picking up broken glass from a very young age and sweeping it away um, or whether it meant trying to literally get in the middle of them and resolve arguments. Mm. But that was my childhood role. Um, what I realise now is that's probably why I developed an anxiety disorder in my adult life, mm. um, because obviously it, was, it wasn't very stable. Um, I felt very loved. I was a very, very loved child. Um, and they, I really, truly believe now they did their best with the tools that they had. But it was a frightening place to be. It was a frightening place to be. And, you know, it was an embarrassing place to be as well. I held a lot of shame for years. You know, the neighbours could hear what was going on. Um, my friends could hear what was going on. I couldn't have certain people round uh, be because of the environment that, they, that I'd grown up in. It meant that there were many troubles. So I didn't have what the other children had. Um, that led to some bullying, um, but I was still really protective. And I know I've kind of flipped through it there, but I'm trying to kind of put in a nutshell. What do you mean by you held embarrassment? So I went to friends' houses and I would watch their family lives. They were no more loved or cared about than me, but it it was too normal for me. So I remember um, going to a friend's house and knocking on the door and the whole family was sat around the table with party hats on, uh, celebrating the cat's birthday, I believe, or the dogs, one of the pets anyway. And I remember thinking, well, this is really weird. You know, we, <laughs> but it was <laughs> looking really back, <laughs> but looking back it's lo it, was, it was a family thing yeah. to do. Yeah. And they were doing it clearly for the kids. But I remember, and I was probably maybe eight years old and thinking then well this is really weird like you know what's going on here in my house we're having parties we're like up till midnight and um. playing the guitar and dancing on a weekend not celebrating the cat being three you know like <laughs> lucky, my parties look lucky like. cat by the way <laughs> don't say that my cats might overhear and start wanting birthday parties <laughs> they are close but I thought you know like that definitely wouldn't have happened in my house, the birthday party for the cat. But, yeah. you know, like it's look as an adult, I look at that and I think, oh, that's really cute. It's cute. It's sweet. And I think yeah. for me, that's what some of the things that started to make me feel, well, I don't kind of have that at home. My family mm. life's different. And I wouldn't say I thought it was bad because I didn't. I was in mm. it and it was normal but it was different and that stopped me from kind of being open about things. I started to hide things, started to cover things up. Um, I wouldn't tell my mum and dad about parents evening cause I didn't want them smelling of wine when mm. they're in front of the teachers and it, it became shameful. I'm mm -hmm. no longer ashamed of it, but as a child, it became shameful. How did you, I'm curious, um, uh, I'm really curious to try and understand better so how did you maybe you don't remember I don't know arrive at knowing that if your parents came to parents evening smelling of alcohol that wasn't a good thing um I think it was comparing myself to other people and seeing 
what their parents looked like, what they wore, what they <laughs> acted like, mm-hmm. and, and just feeling that mine were different. And okay. that was fine. And that was fun behind closed doors. And I actually enjoyed quite a lot of the time with my mum and dad. They were great mm. fun. Mm. Um, but in kind of a school environment when they would be the ones who had gone to the pub before kind of a concert and then would have maybe wine afterwards and, and maybe I could tell they'd, they'd had a drink. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and, and looking back, probably nobody else would have even noticed. It mm-hmm. was just my perception of the situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I became quite, oh, does anyone know? Very aware mm-hmm. of what people might think of me. Mm. Yeah, but I think it came more from the comparison of what I saw was normal. I'm not sure there is a normal now, by the way. <laughs> Neither am I. I'm not convinced. <laughs> I'm not convinced, but that doesn't take away from the fact that um, as children, you do become aware of, well, you start to sort of become aware of what's socially or what seems to be socially acceptable and what isn't as well, right? So the only thing I can compare that to, my parents didn't have drink in the home, but my father's father did. Mm-hmm. my so my grandfather was an alcoholic and I remember being stood I must have been about I don't know 13 and I was stood up on the corner near the corner shop with my friends and that side of the family was quite well known because they had family businesses and we were stood there and his car was obviously blind drunk his car came screeching up onto the pavement almost mounted the wall you know this little wall mm-hmm. brick wall this small town <laughs> mounted I'm laughing it's not funny but it mounted this uh curb anyway and he got out and he was sort of quite well to do and he's gone hello lovely and gone storming <laughs> into his shop <laughs> and my friend said do you know him and I said no no I don't I don't know who that is <laughs> and I remember thinking and I didn't know and it's interesting you say that I didn't know why but all I knew was I need to just say no I don't know who that is and it was my grandfather like it was my grandfather right so I could detach from it because it wasn't my parents because I couldn't you know if it had been my mum or dad I wouldn't be able to say no I don't know who they are but you know I could have just in my mind I was like I could just pass him off as someone else's granddad you know like I didn't know why I needed to do that but I did and then he came out with a big bottle of whiskey got in the car and then charged off, you know. And they're like, I'm sure that's your granddad. I said, oh, no, I don't think it was. I think you must have um, missed yeah. you know. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. And I, th- I think for me, it was very similar to that. Um, I mean, my mum was not alcoholic, I don't think. I think my mum was a, if you can't beat them, join them. Yeah. Um, and she was happy to live my dad's lifestyle and it fit in. And, 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 and you know... It's, it's important for me to say as well, probably a good 70% of the time, there was no problem. My mum was mm-hmm. working. She was a hairdresser. My dad was mm-hmm. doing what he was doing. Um, but when there were problems, there were big problems. Mm-hmm. And I think some of the recognising it wasn't right probably came from them because in their arguments, they would argue about my dad's drinking. Yeah. And it would be, oh, you're just an alcoholic. And I think, you know, I would kind of pick up on that. Um, and certainly on my mum's side my my nana on my mum's side and my auntie so my mum's sister mm. I would hear them talking about my dad in a negative way or you know he's dragged her mum he's dragged their mum down or you know whatever mm. whatever would be used and actually you would jump straight into defense mode no he hasn't they're both the same they're both the same as a child and we would actively argue that they were both the same because we didn't want to think of this wonderful dad figure who who was fun who did teach me the guitar who was very clever who was a musician all those things Mm. wasn't being liked so I Mm. think that 
that was really it's so hard to find that balance of you know actually not being happy and being scared and being afraid and all those things but then not being able to say that for fear of judgment and that's when you start to hide and feel the shame and the embarrassment Mm. and then so just kind of talk me through so you were at home till when were you at home till 19 Mm. 19 so I was 19 my sister was 17 it's another thing you see so they were very wild like I say my parents and um they just got up one day and announced that they were moving out yes you heard me right they were moving out they were moving out yeah yeah so we're in a (laughs) we're in a three-bedroom house and we'd we'd been on a council estate since um, I was maybe seven or eight because through through the pubs and so on. Unfortunately, my dad had gone bankrupt and we mm-hmm. lost the pubs and ended up moving, mm. uh, which actually spurred on a whole load of. That's probably the most turbulent time, seven to nineteen, if I think mm. about it. Um, and yes, yeah, so it was on so. I get to 19, my sister was 17, and my mum and dad just said, right, we've found a one-bedroomed house and we're moving out. You're going to have to move out. Um, so both of us just went, oh, okay, <laughs> and that was it. We're like, we just all three of us left the family home and went into our own separate houses. <laughs> like disbanded. Yeah, yeah. They moved into their one bed. It was clear we weren't going with them. <laughs> we went... In the cupboard. We went into... I started living in the cupboard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. And so you said, <laughs> oh my gosh. And, you know, and, you know, I'm laughing. I'm not laughing at your situation, but, you know, we've had other conversations about life stuff and you just think it's just nothing. Life is just crackers, isn't it? Sometimes. And you kind of go when you're younger, these things happen and you just kind of go with it. And then it's only when you get a bit older, you look back and you're like, that was a bit mad. Like, <laughs> Yeah. And, and the thing is, you're so resilient and you're so used to kind of dealing with difficulty and adversity yeah. that you just take that other thing in your stride. You're just like, oh, OK, I've got to find somewhere to live. So I ended up moving in with a boyfriend and then marrying him far too young because yeah. I was in that situation of, oh, I need some more stability. I mean, I married him when I was like, 20 or 21 it lasted for about eight months makes (laughs) did you know it makes perfect sense to me that that would that would be or could be a natural step from that situation though yeah yeah um it caused a lot of problems actually because my sister saw that as me abandoning it's funny when we speak about it now she mm. saw that as me abandoning her because I moved out first so that we were all in the house we got the news I moved out because I had a boyfriend Mm -hmm. and then she was left behind still mm-hmm. dealing with the turbulent home life and and uh, we've spoken many many times over this and you know I always saw myself as this protector and yet she would say you left me you left me oh, wow yeah yeah and mm. you said that the ages between seven and 19 actually were the most turbulent times um mm-hmm. what what was going on for you during those years so I was a really good child and um, anything that was given to me to learn, I would learn. I I've excelled in maths. I excelled in music, excelled in science mm-hmm. and I, you know, to please them all the time. Um, my sister, not so much. She um, wasn't as academic as I was and she was a little bit naughtier and got up to no good. So a lot of the attention was diverted to her. So in reality, I was getting away with murder actually because I was seen as this good girl 
but actually what I was doing is going out, sneaking out the house in the middle of the night, taking drugs. Mm-hmm. And when I say drugs, I mean, it was at the time cannabis. Um, and then I did go on to speed for a while mm-hmm. doing that around, I don't know, 17, 18, all just dabbling. Um, mm-hmm. But nonetheless, potentially dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah dealing with these arguments and the fights and all the while drinking with my friends every single weekend on the street two liters of cider mm-hmm. getting drunk park benches snogging boys you name it just getting up to stuff that I probably didn't need to be getting up to at that age if I'm honest mm-hmm. um and and then I, I kind of all the while was holding down and it's story of my life actually I'm holding down this perfect outward image so you know straight A's in school goes on to sixth form um I actually burnt out in the first term of sixth form I was going to uh, college in the town center and it was about about an hour's bus ride from where I lived and by Christmas I'd actually dropped out of college um Mm -hmm. and that's the first time I recognized I had a mental health problem but I didn't recognize it at the time. It's, it's now it's retrospectively, uh, but that was stress. That was stress of trying to be this perfect child, doing the travel, having the part-time job. And I ended up going to work then for two years before I went back to sixth form again. Um, and that's been kind of a pattern as well. You know, I go off, I burn out period of really not being well and then boom back in let's do something just as challenging it's mm-hmm. yeah so I think I think when I say challenging I mean in terms of that was my parents heaviest drinking period mm-hmm. that was when the most fights and arguments would happen mm-hmm. but we were also living in like I say in this estate which was a rough estate and I'm not ashamed of my upbringing whatsoever in that mm-hmm. sense I had some great friends from there mm-hmm. But it was dog eat dog. I mean, the first day that we moved in there, we both got beaten up, me and my sister, on the way to the shop by an older girl who um, pushed us into the building site and gave us both a big slap. <laughs> and we both ran home crying. And we, we'd, we'd come from this background where we lived in pubs, but it was quite... We, we were quite well respected as a family because my mum and dad owned these pubs and mm-hmm. we went to a nice school. We got on this estate and both of us go home with slap marks all over our faces and dirt where we'd been pushed into the ground. And um, it was the first time really m- my dad said, you can't, you, you go, you come home like this now and this is going to happen to you too for the rest of the time we're here and we're going to be here for a while. You get back out there and, and we actually sent us out to have a fight with this girl, physical fight. And and I, we were seven and five. How did that go? Um, did you go back out? Did you go we back out? We went back out. Yeah, I remember crying and feeling really shaky and going back oh. out. And it, there was a bit of pushing and shoving. I mean, we were children, we were kids, but there was a bit of pushing and shoving and don't do that to me and a bit of hair pulling. Um, and, and then it, very quickly it was accepted. Oh, they're, they're just as tough and rough as us. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh my gosh the things that go on when we're younger yeah yeah and it, and it was you know it was it was different mm-hmm. um never had to do it again um but it just mm-hmm. the, my dad had come from that he'd come yeah. from that background so he knew mm-hmm. that unfortunately this was a place the kids were feral mm-hmm. we were all feral mm. um so if we were going to survive we were going to have to do it their way just and you were seven and five get back out there 
seven and five get back out there and stand up for yourselves yeah oh my little heart for your little <laughs> seven-year-old self <laughs> yeah yeah and, and I, I can kind of remember it I'm kind of thinking back to it I kind of remember it mm. um but I certainly remember the lesson of you know you stand up for yourself yeah. and you're just going to get destroyed and and that was a physical thing where I grew up you know you stood up mm. for yourself and I, I probably got into maybe three or four fights through the years physical fights as, mm. as a child mm. most of them protecting my sister from older girls mm. and uh it's funny when you're the older one isn't it and you go into like a protection mode for your young younger sibling it's yeah. um you suddenly assume a far more adult role than you ever should have to um but we do it right I was the oldest with three younger brothers I remember marching down to the lower school and getting a boy that was beating him up by the neck picking yeah. him up so his feet was hanging off the floor slamming him up against the wall so do you ever touch my brother again I'll kill you so I, said to him, you. Yeah. <laughs> I was like 13 this kid was 11 like his feet hanging off the floor uh, they never touched him again but you know it's just the mad the things you do for your, your siblings you know like yeah and there was only 16 months between us as well so we were really close Uh, we still are quite close but we obviously our lives have gone different ways but um in terms of that there was you know they they called us the dolly sisters or the dolly sisters are out because we were always together we were everywhere together Mm. and yeah we were best friends so but a lot of that came from the shared secret yeah 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 Yeah. so so you very quickly get exited from the family home and (laughs) gosh I don't really know how else to call it and then you go and get married very quickly so talk me through the next steps and um you know I'd like to talk a bit more about your journey and how you drink ended up featuring in your life as an adult and yeah tell me about that part of your journey yeah okay so by the time I was 19 and moved out I worked behind a bar Mm -hmm. I was a student um I'd gone back to you I was going back to university or going to university should I say so naturally you're in a bit of a boozy culture anyway there with the university life and my first husband was not a big drinker at all but liked red wine and he red wine had been the family drink as well with my mum and dad as as I grew up Mm -hmm. so I probably drank red wine on a Friday and Saturday night in the house with him. Now, because we got married so young and I was a student and he was a nurse at the time, he was a renal nurse, that was our income. So we couldn't afford to kind of go out partying the same as maybe some of our friends did. So very quickly drinking in the house became quite normal. Mm-hmm. Now, one of my best friends at the time um, moved in with us to help pay with the rent. So to pay the rent, so there was the, us two owned the house and she paid us a rent to live with us so we could afford our mortgage mm-hmm. um, and we were like half a, half of friends you know like the three of us we we'd drink together we'd watch tv we'd have a laugh we'd go out together and mm-hmm. we just became this weird little threesome if I'm if I'm honest it wasn't a, a relationship threesome but a weird little friendship threesome and she liked red wine as well so that's where it started that's where it became acceptable to drink every friday saturday night and large quantities because we'd get drunk together watching britain's got talent or whatever was on at the time it wasn't mm-hmm. the x factor i don't know what it was called at the time but um watching stuff like that it just started mm-hmm. off very innocent and very normal 
and because I'd grown up in pubs and then I was working in them I was good at it I was good at integrating and mixing with customers and you know letting them buy me a drink and having one behind the bar and then staying afterwards for after time and things Mm -hmm. like that Mm -hmm. I was just good at it um I guess looking back the first time I realized I had a problem with drink because I've never been able to stop once I started Mm -hmm. um but again, it's looking back at the time, I want to recognise this, was at my graduation from university. So we'd, I'd finished the exams at lunchtime. Um, it was my last day and I was supposed to be going home for a meal with two friends with my then husband. And looking back, I was just playing house, you know, like, who, which 19-year-olds having dinner parties? Do you know what I mean? It's not, I was playing house. That's what mm-hmm. I was doing, 20, however old I was, 20, 21 maybe. And all my friends were going out to celebrate the end of university and I wanted to go. And so I phoned him up and said, I'll be a few hours. Um, that was at lunchtime. And I rocked up asleep on Victoria train station in Manchester at 5 a.m. And he had to come and collect me. And I got home in my friend's jacket. Um, my, my mobile phone battery had run out. And I had um, photographs on my phone of people I didn't recognise. I couldn't remember it. Um, and I had to go back the next day to swap coats and between three of us we'd had nine bottles of red wine what house is yeah and that's the first blackout big event I remember of many 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 and I told that story I wore it like a badge of honor Mm. so if I fast forward all that's happened I then remarried Mm -hmm. We, we we actually separated went our separate ways we were just too young there was nothing wrong with him nothing wrong with me particularly just too young Mm -hmm. met somebody else and he was a drinker Mm -hmm. and it was like a match made in hell Mm -hmm. we when we drank we fought Mm -hmm. it was violent it was just the same as it had been and then I ended up having two children with him Mm -hmm. and drinking in the house was a thing and he actually attacked me one evening um because he thought I'd been having an affair we were living out in Cyprus he had my phone he was looking through my messages and it was a very innocent if I'm not innocent I tell you I'm not innocent you know Mm -hmm. but with him with this it was a friend called Helen and he ended up hitting me in the leg hitting me in the face and my then he's now 15 but he was then three saw it and at that point I thought no I'm I'm leaving him I'm leaving him. Mm-hmm. So just to kind of put all this in context, around the same time, so I travelled back to England with my children, left him there. Um, my dad became very, very ill and then passed away around the same time. So I didn't leave him. I kind of thought I can't deal with all this in one go and I went back. It got worse, the violence got worse. Um and I did actually end up leaving him about six months later. That's the kind of first big rock bottom, I remember, where my drinking became alone drinking mm-hmm. to take the edge off what I was doing. Any excuse to just go out and have some wine and to take the edge off that pain of the loss of my dad, the marriage breakdown. I felt like a failure because I'd always said that if I had children, I wouldn't let them grow up in the household I'd grown up in. Mm-hmm. I would fight for my marriage no matter what. And yeah I was just shattered and and broken um and then the girl that had lived with me 
um, in my with my first husband, mm-hmm. she had developed a drink problem and actually ended up dying in an accident around the same time, drink-related accident. Oh, my goodness. And, of course, all these people around me looking back, I've got all these benchmarks that seemed worse than me, so I'm not seeing that I'm just the same. It could have been me that did that. It could have been me that had the drink-related accident, but no. I've got all these people that are worse, and I say worse with, you know, air commas. Yeah. It's worse than worse than me as my benchmark. So, okay. yeah, I was in a really bad place at that point. Such a lot yeah. happening um, to you and around you, all in such, yeah, yeah. such a condensed space of time. Yeah, and all the while, and this is the thing that, you know, I, when I came back from Cyprus with my children, I returned... My father had died. My marriage had broken down. I had nowhere to live and I had no job and I had no money. So I was in masses of debt as well from credit cards, spending on credit cards. And I remember sitting on the floor in my then rented front room and just looking around and thinking, what is the point? I've got nothing. I can't do anything. And my mum actually turned up at the door and said, and I found it funny because I put it on my Instagram, just get up and put one foot in front of the other. I don't care how you do it, just move forwards. And she dragged me up off the floor and said, your kids aren't going to go to school unless you find them a school. You're not going to be able to pay for a car unless you get a job. You're not going to be able to find a house unless you get a job. Get on the phone. You're a qualified teacher and get your job. And I did that day. I phoned up and I got myself some temp work working in a school. Mm. Yeah. One foot in front of the other, right? And you're... Do you know when you're in the darkest of spaces and I've been been in a couple myself it it's sometimes that first step is just it feels so hard doesn't it um yeah that one step is all it takes to just start to go in a different yeah. direction but it can feel like you're literally stepping on the moon do you know big <laughs> it really does and it was and it was a physical thing for me because when she walked in my house I was sat on the floor in front of the radiator with my two children running around somewhere there were babies still you know three and five maybe and I couldn't I couldn't see I couldn't see past the empty front room with no furniture the credit card bills it felt like everything was caving in on me you know I wanted my dad I just wanted my my, you know even though even though I'd been scared a lot in my childhood, he was also masses of security for me, my dad. He was very, very strong. And all I wanted was my dad to tell me it was going to be all right and that I'd be able to do it. And for the first time, I felt very, very alone. Mm. Yeah. So you say this is one of one of your rock bottom moments. Yeah. Talk to me about that because, I, you know, I know that sometimes... People say, oh, that was a rock bottom, but it wasn't the rock bottom. And so talk to me about your experience around that for you. So for me at that point, I really felt hopeless. And the only thing keeping me from doing anything harmful to myself was the fact that I had these two young children that depended on me. But for the first time in my life, there were cracks showing. So, you know, I wasn't getting on to feeding them on time and the story was caving and the routine had gone and it it just I could tell that I wasn't right I wasn't okay Mm. but when I started to kind of 
pick myself back up and do the things that I needed to do and, and get a job and, and move back into the house that I was renting. All of those things that I needed to do when I started to do them, I, I just started to feel okay again. So I, I didn't really do much about it. I went to the GP, said I didn't feel well, got put on antidepressants. So that was about it. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I just kind of got on with it. There was no self-development work went on. There was no mm-hmm. self-care. I certainly didn't stop drinking. In fact, my children were then going to their dads six days a week, every two weeks. Mm-hmm. So I was I was having them for eight and he was having them for six. And for the six days, although I was holding down a full-time teaching job, I was partying every night in that time. Um, so looking back, the drinking was probably quite bad at that point, mm-hmm. but I was using it as my mum time. And then I was being quite sensible for eight days, you know? Mm-hmm. So I was six days wild, eight days mum, six days wild, eight days mum. And I mm-hmm. met someone else. Um, he's my third husband, my current husband, the father of my youngest child. And, you know, it's worked out. He's not a drinker. He didn't like partying. He's, he was everything I wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, whether I sort of went for him because of that, I don't know whether it was a subconscious thing, whether we've become that together. I honestly don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but we had a baby and I'm quite a bit older than him. I was 37 when I had my, my baby and he didn't have any children. And we'd planned to have two before I was 40. And then... In October 2018, I had another miscarriage. I had a miscarriage, sorry, not another, had a miscarriage. And I had the miscarriage. I went to the hospital for my 12-week scan. I was just about starting to feel a little bit better, you know, from the morning sickness and everything. And I I went in there and she said, how are you feeling? I said, yeah, I feel okay. I've been really, really poorly and tired, but I'm feeling a little bit better. I've started to come out of it. And she switched the screen off. And it hadn't even occurred to me that there could be anything wrong. Mm. It just hadn't occurred to me. And she looked and she said, I'm so sorry, you know, that the heartbeat stopped. And I just wanted to know when, when, when did this happen? And she said, mm-hmm. well, it looks about two days ago. Oh. And she said, there's no sign that you're going to miscarry just yet, as in you're going to lose the baby you need to go home and think about what you're going to do. We're just going to get some counseling. Um, and they took me off and I was in shock. I didn't cry. I didn't do anything. I just kept saying, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. The same walls had gone up every time. Mm-hmm. And I sat in the room and she said to me, um, you've got three options. You can have the medical intervention. You can have the sur- surgical evacuation, or you can wait till this happens naturally. And I'd already stopped drinking, as it's important for me to say, in the August because I'd actually thrown a sandwich at my husband's head in an argument on August bank holiday. And he'd said, look, this is not happening. You you need to sort yourself out. You need to stop. This is before I got pregnant. Yeah. Um, and so I said, yeah, 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 I'm going to stop. And I did because I could tell he was serious and I thought I'll take a break. And then when I found out I was pregnant, I took my eye off the ball a little bit with that and just thought, oh, well, I'm not going to drink now anyway. Nine months without a drink, I'll be fine. Mm-hmm. So during that time, I'd already been stopped drinking before I got pregnant. And I just sat in the chair and I said, I want it out. I want, I want it out now. And I can't explain that unless you've been through it and you can feel the same. I don't know. Not everybody does. I, some people say they wanted to hold on. I didn't. I wanted it gone. I wanted all memory erased. I wanted it to just not be there. I just wanted to move on as quickly as possible. And it was Friday and they said, the earliest we can do your operation is Monday. So I went straight to the pub. 
Mm. And that's where it started again. That's my second rock bottom. And it started again. Drink, 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 drink. Had the operation. I lost a lot of blood. I was very unwell. Drink, 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 drink. Um, breakdown. By the June of the following year, I wasn't working. I'd been in work, but then I'd gone off again sick because I couldn't cope. Um, I kept having suicidal thoughts. I was having nightmares. Looking back, it was probably PTSD because I was having nightmares that my children were being abducted and violent dreams about them, violent dreams. I was waking up sweating and screaming. And it, yeah. it's it just, yeah, that was the worst point in my adult life, the single worst point. And I just sat there and I was, I was a mess. And I phoned up my best friend, Lisa, who's one of the co-founders of Be Sober. She'd already been stopped drinking. And I said, I need your help. I, I need to take a break from alcohol for a month. And that was in June, 2019. And from that point, yes, I've had another miscarriage since then. Sober, with a different mindset, with more mm -hmm. resilience, with more tools. Mm -hmm. It was still painful. But I can honestly say stopping drinking changed my life. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, you've been through so much. Um, I'm just holding my breath as you're saying, <laughs> telling me that last bit, obviously, because that part really resonates with me also. Yeah, I know. Um, I was thinking then I hope I'm all right talking no, to you. No, of course you are. very recent for you. No, of course you are. And, and I resonate with parts of it. It's different. Um but that nightmares in the night I can really relate to um, and having, you know, you're saying you have a dreams of your children being abducted. I was having, I don't have living children. You know, this was, well, trying to be my first, but um, I was having nightmares of being pregnant and then someone just stealing my, my, my baby out of my pregnant body, just stealing it. So very similar, this yeah. sort of, it just, being taken from you yeah. right and this was wild in the night and I was sweating and kicking and screaming and crying and you know it is PTSD after loss and it does take its toll um and I can also um I hear you when you say if I go back to my younger Emma who had people die around me lots of things all happen and I was off the rails mine thing was never drink it was drugs yeah, yeah. the rails with drugs right to cope because I had no other tools to cope and I said to somebody just recently I said if this had happened to a younger Emma I don't even want to know what that would have looked like yeah. because I and the truth is it's not because I was a bad person I just didn't know any other way to cope and yeah this experience I do know different ways to cope and it doesn't make it easier it just no. means that we we come at it in a slightly different way yeah definitely more resilient yeah. certainly but resilient in a real way not in a I'm yeah. just going to black it out way because when yes. I had I had the second miscarriage in June, uh, very similar circumstances, but this time I thought I feel too well. And I went, I've, I said, I need a scan. And I found out that way. So a little bit earlier, but similar circumstances. And it's funny because 
Um, yesterday I got a letter through and I've been having blood tests to find out about my miscarriages. Mm -hmm. And I, yesterday I took a knock actually because I found out that my miscarriages were both caused by something present in my blood, which is called lupus anticoagulant. Mm -hmm. And I'm 43 now and I've nearly 43. And I found out that both were preventable. And that was really tough yesterday. Really tough. I had a tough day. Um, but also I had a tough day and I was able to sit in the tough day and go, okay, I've got the news. How do I feel about that? How can I process it? Mm -hmm. I'm okay. I'm okay. Um, and I think the reason it's so hard is because I've come to accept that I probably won't go on to have more children now out of choice because I don't want to put myself through that again. I don't know if my mental health would take um another loss or another knock mm -hmm. as well mm -hmm. so as sad as it is I think for me now I've come to the point where I think right what's going to be best for me is to not go through this again even though potentially it was preventable oh I'm so sorry you had mm. that news I mean it's um fertility stuff it's so deeply personal and deeply complicated for every every woman I speak to um and what I would like to kind of go back to a bit is that I was I was able to sit with how I felt and you know that part and I do think that's a huge part when you learn tools to help you process and I and this is what I talk about quite often we can either cope or we can process yeah right they're the two avenues but often until you've learned tools to process and feel mm -hmm. your only option is to cope and the only way you can cope is the only way you've had modeled to you that you've seen or that you've used to escape yeah for me it was always put my trainers on and run and yeah. get out of my head get out of my body just whatever it is whether we go to a different country take drugs do whatever it is right escape I've got to escape out of this I've got to run and it it's um it's really interesting for me how that can change when you learn ways to process and that desire still comes up in me to run sometimes I think oh no that's oh, yeah. it that's it just get the stuff pack the bags let's go don't know where I'm going uh, but somewhere anywhere yeah <laughs> not no, here. It's, I get it <laughs> but it's that no 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 whoa 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 like you know like holding back the horses hang on a minute let's just yeah. sit still and you can only do that when you know that there's a safe way to do that and yeah. and that's the the hard but the magical part of this learning that I've certainly been learning, I find it incredibly powerful, painful, yeah. but powerful. Yeah, I'm with you completely. And yeah, I get it. I get it. And going through the things that I've been through in my life, they may sound tough, mm. but I say, you know, I know we're coming to the end now, but mm. it's what I will say to round off what I've said is that, going through those things is what's made me the person that's now able to deal with and process the things that I need to deal with and process. So I'm, I'm actually, as, as, as much as I say, that's my normal, it's my normal. I'm not detached from it. Like it might sound. Mm -hmm. I'm just accepting mm -hmm. of it. And it's mm -hmm. been a huge part of what's made me, me. So yeah. yeah. 
I'm grateful for it in a weird way. <laughs> no, I, I get it. I get it. You sit there and it's funny when you talk to, when you have conversations with people who kind of get where you're coming from, we all end up kind of sitting there going, I'm kind of grateful for, you're not grateful or you don't feel like you deserve what happened, but you're grateful for what you've learned as a result of the experiences that you've gone through. And that's kind of, the the feeling of it I mean this is you know nobody ever sits there and says I know I think I'd like all of these things to happen to me please yes I'll order them I'll have it and I'll have it delivered to the door tomorrow <laughs> like of course yeah, not yeah. that's not what this is about <laughs> and it's not necessarily saying that we take that takeaway order and order them again either but <laughs> you no, know no, like you know you wouldn't pick up the takeaway order now at 43 or at me 40 this year and say yes as a 40 year old Emma I'd like to do them all again please no <laughs> but I wouldn't necessarily change what I've gone through because of what I now learn and who I am for it right and um exactly exactly yeah, yeah. yeah. thank you for sharing your story your life experiences <laughs> with me I'm sorry it's been so packed in it's, yeah I, I really am grateful that you've let me on and let me share and, and wanted me on to share I'm really grateful thank you Emma thank you thank you so much for your time thank you for listening and I look forward to introducing you to my guest in my next episode until then don't forget to take care of you